and welcome to Abnormal Mapping, episode 62. I'm your host, M, and with me is a regular co-host, Jackson. I'm regular Jackson, hello. I don't want to follow that up with the question I was about to follow it up with, so... What were you going to follow it up with? I was going to ask about your regularity, but I don't want to know, because it's rude and private. What? Regular. God, you're so young. Okay, someone's going to have to explain how that is a slang for a sex thing. Cause it's I don't, not like, a sex the... thing. Being okay. regular means that you're going to the bathroom in a proper manner. Like, your diet's good. You're not plugged up. You're not runny. You're just good. You're regular. It's, it's a fucking, like, medical thing. Oh, no, I've never... N- no, never... Maybe it's just a U.S. No. thing. I don't know. Is, does that come from, like, when you get physicals done? Uh, no, I, was, I, I always associate it with, like like fucking um like old people commercials about like oh like oh, okay i don't know eat more fiber bullshit like that uh i ask because the concept of like a physical is not it doesn't happen like you go to the doctor when something's wrong the idea of like a checkup when nothing's wrong doesn't hey british health systems not doing so great these days <laughs> You want preventative care is cheaper in the long run than like treating symptoms as they appear. I agree. It's much better. Everyone should have checkups about, you know, this kind of stuff, but they don't because that would cost money. Okay. They'd rather the poor people die. Well, yeah, no, that's fair. Jackson, how are you? Great. (laughs) (laughs) Just, just uh, chipper having a good time over here. Nah, I'm fine. It has <laughs> been it has been 300 years since we last recorded a podcast. Yep. Cock the head on my side and said I'm angry. It's a lot. I don't. What was that? A... No, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> Why is it? Record a podcast. I, I feel like every time we record one of these, I feel like it's been a lifetime since we've done it, though. That's because we operate on a monthly schedule anyway, and usually record in like batches. Did we record early last time? I don't think we did. A month is a long time. And we've talked to each other a lot since then, and the world has changed several times. Yep. world never changes, Jackson. And yet, and yet. So, uh, what have you been up to? What have you been playing that is not for a game club? Um, I've been playing quite a lot of video games over the last month. Okay, well, tell me something interesting about one or two of them. Um... So after I completed my Metal Gear Hell journey of hell, uh, I was like, ooh, clearly stealth games are a thing I enjoy. Let's find a good one. Maybe I'll enjoy volume. That's a thing that's similar to this. I didn't enjoy volume. So instead I played Mark of the Ninja, which is a much better game that I like a lot. I never played it at the time uh, because it kind of hurts my eyes. Do you want to describe to people what Mark of the Ninja is, like a podcast we do? Oh, right. Yeah, sure. So, Mark of the Ninja is a game in which you are a ninja who has been marked. Jackson, who made it? When did it come out? Clay... I'm always bad at this stuff. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, uh, Clay Studios? Clay Games? Clay... The point is it's Clay. It's a Clay game from 2012. Okay. Uh, Originally an Xbox Live Arcade game. I know it came out on PC, but that's where I think of it as coming out first. One of the last ones of those. When that was a thing, like that was a genre of game release that could happen. Oh, I think of this as a PCS PC game, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tried to play it back in the day, uh, and it hurt my eyes because it, it was dark on the monitor, and just it's it's a very dark game, and I was having glasses trouble. Anyway, I hadn't actually sat down and played it till now. It's it's really good. 
it's more of a puzzle platformer than I expect because the 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 like premise of the game is you are a ninja and you have to reach the end of the level and in your way are a bunch of obstacles which you can either approach by uh like sneaking and then there's a guard and then you stab him in the back and he doesn't see you because you're a ninja yeah. or you don't stab him in the back and he doesn't see you because you're a ninja uh and it like it presents ghosting and never revealing your presence and also murdering every single person as completely valid options in all the like puzzle sections um because while there is like a bit of uh stealth as a like thing you do and push at the edge like metal gear presents stealth as a sandbox this presents self as very very designed puzzles yeah i um i always think about and part of this is because of uh idle thumbs but i think of this in terms of dishonored because they played these games came out around the same time or at the very least like idle thumbs played them and discussed them at the same time but i think they actually came out around the same time and to me and to chris remo uh, mark of the ninja feels very much like what a 2d version of something like dishonored would look like uh, I guess I would count Dishonored way more in the sandbox approach. I don't think there's like sand like Dishonored comes from like the Looking Glass era of you have three options, but they're like three very designed options. Like I don't consider that like a sandbox game. Uh, sandbox not intensive. You can go and do a bunch of things, but I mean, if you want to murder a dude in Dishonored, you can. Uh, I mean, you can not murder him, you can be non-lethal, you can sneak around him, you can trank him, you can stab him, you could use the blink power. Like, it is about the way the various powers interact with each other, especially as someone who played those games violently, or that game violently when I played Dishonored 1. Mm. Like, it is about having a variety of powers which interact in different interesting ways in, uh, like, a stealth... Like, the thing that makes Dishonored this to me is that once you are spotted the game becomes a different thing Mm. whereas in mark of the ninja once you are spotted you are fucking done i mean in dishonored when i'm spotted i reload my last save sure but you can play it in a way where there are like you get you hide you get spotted you hide again or you get spotted and you go lethal like it presents a world in which you can react to the things happening to you i think as Uh, someone who who played dishonored as like trying to ghost my way through that and kill nobody uh these two games are much closer than they are to you oh for sure because this is definitely like if i'm spotted i'm reloading like the you you can technically take four hits and maybe try to fight but you lose so many points and it like it's no you can't actually do that fuck off yeah but uh, like to me like if i'm playing a stealth game i don't want like if i get spotted i failed like i need to not have that happen oh i'm actively trying to stay out of that mindset in stealth games that was my like takeaway from this big playthrough of stuff i want to be able to have the failure and then push back against it some games don't i don't think some like i think a lot of i don't think a stealth game has to support failure as like an interesting state no but the ones that do i don't want to cut myself off from that so oh, I, sure. I wouldn't do that in mark of the ninja because but also uh, like I think, it, I think it's if i think it's valid to say to yourself this is how i like to play and i want to have that and if it takes me butting my head against the wall i'm gonna butt my head against the wall Oh yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, but for me, I feel like I cut myself off from ways of enjoying the game hmm. uh, because I don't allow myself to fumble through it. Okay. Whereas I think the slop of those systems, like bouncing into each other, is a lot of the fun. Mm-hmm. 
Because uh, my memory of Mark and Linda, and I haven't played this since it was relatively new, so excuse me if I get these wrong, but so much of it is, like, picking your path through these multi-level stages. Like, yes. you can go up and over, you can go underneath or whatever, but or you could just, like, go the middle path and, like, hide in the shadows, but everything is, like, the sound and sight radiuses of guards and dogs and stuff in the 2D spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And there's a lot of, like... Uh, there's like a very clear like shadow and light mechanic. So you're like, I'm hiding in the shadows, so they're not going to see me. Stuff like that, right? Again, the Mark of the Ninja was rightly praised a lot for how incredibly clear it is about the various states that you could be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very clear if a guard can or cannot see you. It is very clear if a guard can or cannot hear you. It is very clear if you're in a space where you can freely assassinate someone without being detected or if it's going to like kick off a fuss. Like... It makes it very obvious to you what your options are as a ninja. Uh, I think that's the, like that's why that game is as good as it is because like it feels good, but it's just so clear about uh, the things you're able to do, and as such, does not become a "why the fuck did they see me" game because that's where that falls apart. Yep. Yeah, that, that's always where stealth games can be bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's good. That's it's good. Very good. I'm glad. How's Mega Man Five going? Shut up. <laughs> you know it's fine. I'll probably be. It'll yeah, probably be you'll probably over. Out. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, uh, it's fine. Like that that video game has taken me too long because my life has been a absolute shambles the last this beginning of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am so excited to be free. And then there's another one. If I um, if I ever had the gumption, I would go in and cut out every time you said my life has been shambles and a time frame. From the history of this podcast, and I feel like it would never not. No, be every a every episode, every there is never going to be a point where I'm like things are good because the 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 tragic fucking Hugh Grantness of my life is not just in the way that I speak and you know fumble through every conversation in the most British way. It's also just how my life occurs. Yep. Uh, like I'll go through a thing, but oh, this might get better, and it might do a little bit. Then another shoe will drop somewhere else, and I'll be like, oh, this is gonna be fine. Don't worry about it. And then I'll deal with it really bad. Like it just, it is fun to watch from the outside. I suffer in very specific ways. I don't, you know, I don't actually think it's fun to watch you suffer in these ways. I like watching you suffer in Mega Man. That's different. But yeah, uh, I poke fun because that's the way we both cope with the world being shit. It's true. Uh, we don't reply to people on Twitter. I want to apologize in advance because I'm seeing it on the waveform. I'm drinking a cup of tea, and when I set down the cup, it makes a slight little noise, and I can't really help that. I'm sorry. That's incredibly rude of you because I have never made any kind of uh, fidgeting sounds on the waveform. Yeah, my th- little. Uh, it is spring for sure around here, so my sinus has been bothering me. So a cup of tea helps the throat on days like this. It does. Yeah. Have you played any video games? I have been playing Gravity Rush Two. Which is a PlayStation What's 4 that? game. Uh, this is from, uh, let's see, who developed this? I just wanted to say uh, Sony, but it is SIE Japan? Japan Studio and Project Siren. Um, but it's basically Sony. Uh, so this is the sequel to Gravity Rush, which was like the in the launch of the launch period of the Vita. It was like the big Vita game. Um, it was an open world superhero game in which you are a cat who is this girl who like shows up in this town that's like all these floating Japanese Europe cities and she finds out she can control gravity. So you use that to fly around and pick things up and do super heroics and uh, Gravity Rush 2 
uh, came out earlier this year for the PlayStation 4 and is the sequel to that and is this really interesting, really broadly political open world game that's so much about, like, so you're still Cat and things have happened and you're in a different city and the city is, like, divided into these strata based on people's class. So, like, there's all the merchants in the middle and then there's the rich people in these mansions that take up entire small islands up top and down below is this like airship flotilla of just a bunch of like hovels that were all lashed together down below near where the gravity storms are. Um, and you navigating that space as like a hero, but a hero that like the rich people want to show you off as like, Oh, look at this cool girl who runs around and does stuff for us. And the, po the political force wants to use you as like, she can get shit done and defeat the monsters and get it done. But then like the poor people see you as a tool for the police, but cat is like super well-meaning. So the minute that she realizes that the police are using her, she will uh, flip sides and like attack the police to help the poor people. And it causes all sorts of social, social problems in the town. Um, it's a really smart game. Uh, and I like it a lot. I feel like the storytelling on both these games is really good. Uh, Gravity Rush 2 is really incredible. If you've looked at my Twitter feed in the past month, I posted a bunch of videos of that game because I love the way it looks and the plays and his sensibilities. Um, I think it's a little long. I, like, I'm getting towards the end, and I kind of just want to finish it. And I keep wanting, like, I keep doing the side content because it has story stuff in it. Um, and I wish it wasn't that. Like, I wish this game, I wish this game was like 15 hours long instead of like 30. Mm -hmm. You but, know, it's still going to be like one of the smaller open world games, like compared to what they are now. Yeah, but that first game is like a game you can easily complete in like a weekend if you really put your mind to it. And the second game is not that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. That's cool, though. Yeah, well, no, I, I like it a lot. Uh, it I ordered a bunch of Figma of Cat and uh, Raven, who's like the other gravity shifter who might be evil, might be your rival. She's not evil. I guess she's your rival, but... Oh, Jean. Yeah, it, basically, yes. <laughs> yep. yep. But that's, uh, that's what I've been doing. I got a new graphics card yesterday. So what did you download to play on your new graphics card? <laughs> Tell the people what you got so, a 1060. Yeah, I was going to get a, I was going to get a 10 I was going to get a 1070 and then I like waffled about and I was having trouble saving up the like 400 and whatever dollars you'd need for it. Oh. And um I was like, I'm going to get a 1060 because you have a 1060 and you've had great success. It, like you yes. run everything basically at ultra because both of us have 1080 monitors that we don't intend to upgrade anytime soon. We're not interested in VR. So uh, I got a 1060 six gigabyte ridiculous card dripping with like radiator pipes and LEDs. And it's the dumbest. I love that graphics cards have not changed in terms of their aesthetics in years. Yep. Um, and what I downloaded, you'll be happy to note, is games such as Sonic Adventure 2, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2, Shovel Knight. <laughs> going to really push... Uh, the edges of it. you should find the most graphically intense mods for Kotor two and I don't uh, think those exist. I don't think those. I don't think that's a thing. Someone's modded like the highest res Sonic you could possibly get. Oh no! I I wouldn't want high res Sonic in Adventure two. Everything else is the same. That's the worst. But That's the worst. I hated so much. Just really high res Sonic. I did get Dirt Rally. Um, it's in the humble monthly. Um, which won't be available by this time this goes up, will it? Or it might. You know, it still will be no, for another still, week. It'll go till 
go through, you know. Yeah. Um, so if you get the Humble Monthly, I don't, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. And so I bet the rest of the games are going to be crap. But it was the cheapest Dirt Rally's ever been. And so I was willing to pay mm -hmm. this $12 just for that. Um, yep. If you're if you're a fan of the show and you want a copy of Inside for PC, let me know. I'll give you my copy. Um, oh, I also have one. Okay. Yeah, yep. If you, two people can get a copy for Inside for the PC because me and Jackson played those ga that game when it was new. Um, uh, but Dirt Rally is uh really good i i want to play a little more before i talk about it but uh it gets rid of all of the stuff i don't really like about dirt 3 to just focus on what if we made like a really good rally game and uh there's a, like a commensurate rise in the expectation of uh being good at driving that that has that like i played it last night and to be fair i was very tired when i played it last night but it seems like a much harder game than dirt 3 was which is fine because yeah. i thought dirt 3 was pretty easy I remember us playing Dirt 3 and thinking, oh, yeah, you turn the assists off and it's kind of okay. And you just, like, it's, yeah, this is the driving sim. It's good. And then you started playing this and we're like, oh, no. I mean, <laughs> oh. I was actually really, I'm really excited, but it is a different beast. And, like, I'm glad because Dirt 3 was, like, cool, but uh, I felt like the things that it added to be, like, a good racing game that you put out on consoles and people really play and, like, sells well um, took away from what you want. And uh, in a world where driving games, I feel like, are starting to get more specific again, I'm really interested in a game like this. Because I feel like the big mass market has kind of gone away for that because nobody cares because EA is not putting out Need for Speed anymore. That's not true. There's going to be a Need for Speed game announced in three weeks. Yeah, but no one's going to play it. Just like the last one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just like the last 20 of them. Remember when they were like, we can't make Burnout anymore because Need for Speed is a recognizable brand, and then they drove that into the ground too? Criterion making like three X-wing levels now. I want to die. Remember when we read the novelization of the Need for Speed movie while you played Burnout Paradise? The Machete Man gang. Okay, is the, the that it wasn't included in the movie is a tragedy that only me and you care about. But if you want to find out about the beauty that is the terrible, those fucking are fun, those are fun YouTube channels, right? Yes, those are on our YouTube channels. You can watch that happen. I'm sure we're very young and very weird. Yeah, go but... to uh you know what no, I mean whatever. Like things are things are different, but uh um if you Machine go Man Gang. If you go if you go to YouTube and search our channel for Read for Speed, you will get them. Yes. They are four videos of me reading through while Jackson plays and it's great. Uh that's a very funny book. If you just want a good time, watch the uh trailer for the Need for Speed film because it's an amazing trailer for a movie that doesn't exist. Specifically, the first teaser trailer. Is that the one it uh, is? I, I, I don't know if it's the first teaser so you'll get the like thing from the conference, but it's the first... It's not the big like trailer, launch trailer or anything. It is the first real... Yeah, it's the one with the it's the one movie. with the opera in it. You'll know. You'll know. Uh, and, tra and like the thing that is amazing about that trailer was cut from the movie, even though it remains in the book. It's, so we know the context for it. It is a key part of the book. <laughs> It is a key part of the book. Man, okay, apparently I'm just going to get into this. The Need for Speed movie could have been so much more. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. The book has... So, the thing is, like, he's, like, a good guy, whatever, and then he gets framed for, like, this evil guy who's actually not that evil, except for the part where the plot needs him to be the bad guy, um, frames him for, like, a murder of someone in a street race, and he has to go to jail. And in jail, he, like, gets this, like, Count of Monte Cristo, like prayer of vengeance that he like carves into the wall and swears to live by and he comes out as basically like racing batman and goes around and like i'm gonna get that guy back and i'm gonna take everyone down through street racing and proceeds to do that and also in prison like fights a machete man gang 
It's, it's in the movie. It cuts directly from him going into prison to come out of prison. So there is no context for why he is talking like Batman now. Yes. Which is funny in its own right. <laughs> but his like his prayer of vengeance is in the first trailer. So they clearly <laughs> recorded it because he reads it out oh. as the trailer plays. <laughs> it's, they shot it. I need the footage more than anything. Yep. The Machete Man I gang mean, probably did not make the film. To be fair, I'm going to say the Machete Gang gang was cut before they got to film it, but th- there's definitely a scene of him in his cell, like cutting on the uh, on the wall as he s- gives his prayer of vengeance for Little Pete. Yeah, no, and then he's uh, then he's like doing the like arrow like pull ups thing in front of it yeah. while he looks at it, all shirtless and sweaty. Like, of course that happened. He's like, they will, they'll take everything. But also, me. it's Aaron Paul looking vaguely stoned. <laughs> oh. That- he had his first sex in the Applebee's. It look, we need to move on, but goddamn, that left a mark on us. Yeah, I think that's it. So we're gonna cut to a segment two that has been uh, previously recorded with a special guest. Please enjoy that and come back for our game club. <laughs> For segment two, we have a very special guest here to talk about uh, games from Japan as kind of our reaction to Persona 5 coming out and the discourse around it, and we just wanted to weigh in. So here we have um, our friend of the site, uh, Omar Elsar. Hello. Is that, is that right? I was suddenly very nervous, even though I talk to you every day. <laughs> no, that's correct. A few weeks. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, good, good. Um, and this was inspired by uh, you two uh, veteran weebs, as I like to call you both. God damn it. <laughs> Having a discussion on Twitter, reacting uh, to the way JRPGs and Japanese games in general are like perceived in 2017. But because we have a lot of listeners who have no fucking clue what that means, why that means anything and who like cares about this kind of differential uh i want to start by asking you to like so what are we talking about here explain it to me as if i am a child who has never seen anything on game facts <laughs> you want me to do this and then you can fill it up if i drop any balls yeah go ahead okay so back once upon a time in the 2d era japanese video games were like the main source of video games for most people playing console games in the west and thus there was a special affinity for them once people realized that it wasn't just an art style, these things were actually anime. Uh, this <laughs> happened in the 90s, especially with uh, the birth of the very long JRPG series in particular, which are, you know, we've covered JRPGs, you know what they are, you have hit points, you go around, you do stuff, I don't know, we've talked about them a lot. Um, the thing that happened is uh, a lot of PC developers in the West decided to make console games once consoles got really popular, say around the PS2 era. And at the same time, the amount of 
cutscenes and voice acting and everything that you had to put into a Japanese RPG as people expected them at that point became, uh, let's say, um, financially ruinous to multiple people. <laughs> and so you had this moment, this inflection point where Japanese games were too expensive to be made the way people expected them to be. And Western developers with new skills and new sensibilities started entering the space with games that appealed to a different audience. Like, the audience changed, people started playing Madden and shooters, and uh, JRPGs kind of went on the download. They didn't go away. They never went away. And um, for the past maybe five years, but basically ever since this moment, uh, fans of JRPGs especially have been like, oh, we need Japan to come back. We need them to rebound, even though Japan's doing okay. Like, they continue to make games. If you own a portable system, there are dozens and dozens of Japanese games for you to play that are very much like the games you grew up loving. Um... But I would say, like, the one-two punch of we're finally escaped the Final Fantasy XIII suck hole and uh, Dark Souls came out that everyone was like, oh, Japan is back, where they are making games that are quote-unquote appealing to Western sensibilities, uh, which means that the anime bullshit is on, uh, you know, on a simmer, and they're really hard so the elitist jerks who still like Japan can be elitist jerks about a new thing. Uh that's kind of where I think we're at. Mm-hmm. That sounds about accurate. Yeah, those are those are the those are the the Spark Notes versions of it. But essentially, yeah, the expenses prevented them from creating. Uh, guess I guess just Japan prevented Japan and uh, JRPG creators from creating anything on the scale of the AAA things that everybody expects and that get the most coverage. While they kind of quietly. Uh, moved away into the portable space where the budgets didn't get out of control and then they could uh beyond just bringing back a lot of the older jrpg styles like work on them and continue to iterate on them in kind of ways that were invisible to the mainstream audience until you know uh persona 4 or persona 5 pops up onto the scene and appears with all the small changes that they've been working on up until that point um, that, you know, went unseen by anybody who didn't own a handheld. Basically, the DS and uh, the PSP were where all those, like, Super Nintendo and PlayStation 1-style JRPGs migrated to, and anything in that kind of vein. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the for thing... me, as a layman's oh, like outsider perspective, the thing that has been like interesting for me during this narrative, and also going back and like familiarizing myself with older games and uh, like uh, playing the Final Fantasies and uh, you know playing the Metal Gears and what have you, like playing the the games from Japan that people like, like Castlevania and what have you. Um, the thing that is interesting is you go back to those old games and you play the new games, and what happened. But which is true across like all of similar cultural stuff. Like I've watched anime from old and new as well. Everything got horny, <laughs> and th- like th- it feels like the stuff itself is trying to present as that. Like Persona Five is here is a JRPG, whereas the JRPGs that were big in um, you know. Uh, in the 90s, which is here as a video game, because this is the video game that is popular right now. These are the good things. Whereas now it is, like, fully selling to your otaku types on Twitter. Like, that is a brand now, not just a genre. And I think that change has been, the like, the 
the where the discomfort that came from like that uh, spawned this kind of discussion came from i would say yeah so you basically get um since there's a smaller audience it becomes more of a niche audience and then they increasingly appeal to a smaller and smaller like otaku niche and so it really only gets the uh, games from that space really only get brought up when so- they do something really uncomfortable to whatever the mainstream audience is so that just continually feeds into this idea of um the japanese games being all the the very horny ones and it's not that there's no horny games it's just that they tend to be um the ones that get picked out of the crowd mm-hmm. and they also I mean, get I... picked out of the crowd in like a different way than like uh I don't know, the Western RPGs with, like, bikini babes on every cover, right? Like, we're so used to seeing those at this point that we just kind of gloss over them as if that's not happening. So, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that's, like, a common thing in this space, uh, like, in the Western space. I feel like the optics of putting a booby lady front and center are, like, the understanding that that is not okay is much wider spread in Western game development, at least in the last five years. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I mean, they do have a um, lot more uh, of that, like, closer feedback. Yeah, uh, the thing I've always understood with Japan uh, as, like, a market is once the anime boom and the anime game boom, like, dried up uh, in the late 90s, like, mid-aughts, like, everyone turned to, like, soaking the otaku market as hard as possible. So everything became something that you can sell body pillows and giant statues around. And that is why everything happens to be a booby lady, because that's the stuff people want. Uh, and the other option is all of your like beloved series that didn't get a like didn't get a third birthday where your heroine <laughs> oh now has her clothes fall off is they got like mobile exploitative gotcha pawn slot machine card games. Or if you're Fire Emblem, you got both at the same time. <laughs> you did. That's true. Fire Emblem got the horny, the gotcha pawn, and they got the, to continue. <laughs> they get to continue off the backs of both of those. And I, I feel like the other pillar of this that is specifically like this year, uh, around talk around like yakuza zero and uh near automata is games that have existed and continue to exist in japan uh like from dragon guard to near to this new one which is platinum so it's a different thing but yakuza is a series that has been going since 2006 and has not changed one bit it is the same game it is identical uh but it just happens to like now have a like resurgence of popularity in like western spaces so it gets brought up as this kind of like oh th- this game these games are like coming back when actually no it's just always been there and hasn't really had the attention here before uh, so you get this false narrative of um like uh, uh, japan has returned to beat the boring open world games or whatever the hell the forums is talking about now like, yeah. yeah the yakuza games essentially haven't changed their design from the ps2 era like, if you go and play Yakuza 1 and then you go play the remake of Yakuza 1, you'll see a lot of similarities and kind of just, you can directly trace their roots. And, like, even the latest Yakuza games feel in, like, some way like a PS2 brawler or a PS2 JRPG. Mm-hmm. And it, but the the first Yakuza game came here when, like, people were still trying to localize everything. So yep. we got that weird dub with, like, Mark Hamill <laughs> in it. 
Is Majima? Is Majima? Mark Hamill is Majima. Yes. yes. Wait, what? Really? Yes. Mark Hamill is Majima. Yes. Oh, and I think they man. still use all the honorifics. Yes, they. Do. Yeah. So the first line in that game is like some random uh, talking to uh, Kiria and being like, "Oh, thanks, Anarchy," but it's, <laughs> it's some this guy dubbed, and then you walk into an alleyway, and it's Mark Hamill as Majima. That's <laughs> true. They should include the dub in the in Kiwami. Just I just wish. To let people just know. have the have Majima <laughs> have Mark Hamill come back and do the Kiricha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Kiria's voice is terrible because they don't understand why kiryu is cool and also just in that game why kiryu is cool hasn't really been fully established yet like this is we're a long way off from off uh, like orphanage dad kiryu at this point uh but yeah like those games are the same <laughs> and yeah uh, so the, the narrative around them like returning and this being this kind of like triumphant thing just rings very hollow to me yeah, we got that weird, like, when that game came out, we got that weird dub thing, and now we're in a different spot where, like, people want to play with the original Japanese voices in Persona 5, instead okay. of having an actual dub. I want to talk about that quickly, because I have seen this happen more, like, more, and I don't understand where, like, why now? Like, why not years ago? Did I just ignore it years ago? But I feel like... Everyone is like, if you don't have Japanese options for your voices, then you have not released a video game. So people would have always chosen the Japanese voices, I think, that are in this space. Like, a more casual person would probably want the dub, because you don't want to... Like, the same people who don't want to read their movies don't want to read their video game. But um, uh, these people would always do that. It's only now that it's become expected because Blu-ray discs are so big and PC versions always include them, usually, that you're going to get your language options. I think it's coupled with the fact that, like, by all accounts, Persona's localization is a little shoddy uh, compared to prior Atlas efforts. And I say that knowing that part of that is prior Atlas efforts and part of that is the expectations, I think, have changed a lot since 2008 for what you get out of a localization. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's really, there's a lot of similarities within the anime, like, subs versus dubs thing. Uh, it was specifically the new Bayonetta PC version. They were like, and you can choose uh, Japanese voices. And I'm just looking at this going, who on earth would do this? Yeah, who in the <laughs> who who looks at Bayonetta and, be, and says, oh, this is a story that I have to have with the Japanese voice acting. Yeah. Like, in the extra, it makes sense because the dub was terrible. Um, <laughs> but, like, that's such... That is a very specific game about... Be- that is a game about being in a Japanese like town. Like it's about it's about the experience of Kamurocho as a place. Uh, in a way, the like just this is an anime game, so you know you put the voices in because uh, you know uh, that I feel like they aren't. Even though uh, Persona is also that, it's very different and it had its own stuff. Like the Persona had a style of dubbing that was totally like established before now so i don't know why it was i don't know i don't know it was also weird to me yeah because that's also one of those games that's about a very they pick like kind of specific time periods and like uh (laughs) issues especially so like if you go to like stuff like yakuza zero they have the whole 80s and there's a very specific vibe towards the boom economy and capturing that and then issues with immigration and uh specific dealings with real estate and things like that that are very local and it's always mm-hmm. been a very local and condensed game so it always really made sense to just have that in japanese because if you're the kind of person who's going to appreciate 
those things in the first place. It really won't sour you to not hear Kiryu speaking English or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's kind of the cultural moment we're in here now. And so uh, things like that are, uh, are given a little bit more space for understanding, I guess, for the most part. And then, it, but it also leads into people just discovering that these things have been happening for ages and then suddenly saying, oh yeah, Japan's on a comeback, you know? As if like the his, the last history of the last couple decades hasn't happened or led up to this point and has continued to lead up to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, like it's also weirdly, like it's not just ahistorical, but I feel like they apply that like spectrum to the wrong things where you get a very xbox live arcade feeling rpg throwback like i am setsuna which like square enix was like we're gonna make we made uh we made bravely default but not very many people played it who matter because uh (laughs) it was a portable game so we're gonna make something that looks more like a game that you would buy on a service and it's going to be boring and no one's actually gonna like it but people are gonna look at it and be like oh they made another one of those when like that like small tier rpg has been a flourishing genre like I know that those games exist in Japan and very few have been brought over as like indie games, but there's even like a whole genre here of Western made JRPGs. Like you look at how Undertale exploded. You look at how, I know it's not a JRPG by like strict definitions, a game like Stardew Valley exploded. Uh, we had Cosmic Star Heroine come out uh, just the other day, which is just like Chrono Trigger and Fantasy Star had a baby. Like it's the most Japanese inspired thing. Um, and those games don't get, lumped into this conversation because the jrpgs still have to come from japan which is strange to me because i don't feel like like no one talks about vanquish like oh it's not a real shooter it's from japan yeah it's really um people like to hold on to this like weird japanese mystique uh which has like really gross nationalistic and you know maybe even racial implications about um what makes a jrpg and like what makes it special because it's mm. got to have that specific uh, cultural character behind it to make it feel legitimate. Um, so, yeah, it's it's weird because JRPGs as a whole share a lot in common with like other RPGs and have a lot of similar roots, but uh, are considered a distinct genre, except we don't really um, apply that genre, like you said, when a non-Japanese developer does it, right? Yeah, and, like, even to speak to that his, a historic... Like, no one... Like, most people who talk about these things that are fans of the modern JRPG forget that JRPGs came directly out of games like Wizardry that came directly out of D&D and, like, pen and paper traditions that Japanese players liked those type of games when they came onto PCs from the West. Yeah, and they continue to actually develop a whole bunch of them onto PCs. And they mm-hmm. had a lot of PC versions of stuff. And na- only now are we kind of getting stuff like... Uh, the various like uh, P- upgraded PC ports of like East or um, Xanadu, like Xanadu Next, mm. I think came out like last year. Uh, but th- then this like kind of discussion goes the other way, right? When you see Dark Souls blow up big enough to the point where a lot of people argue, "Oh, this isn't even a JRPG because it like sheds the connotations of that," and so you have people arguing that if a game is good enough, it, it like escapes this label it's just weird it's like there's like decades of baggage around genres that 
are very poorly defined and mostly along like kind of gross cultural lines which lead to arguments that haven't stopped or really changed <laughs> with history which leads to if anyone doesn't know what's happening when a video game comes out they're like if they log on to twitter and see any of this they'll just immediately like turn around and walk away because it doesn't make any sense to an outsider yeah like it's it like it's like such a bizarre categorization especially like when you bring up dark souls and then dark souls coming from all those previous games like Kingsfield, which are just like oh we made wizardry in real time and then that's also the inspiration for like half the dungeon crawlers including like shin megami tensei and then persona and they're all in the same route but they like escape the label because i don't know you can hit a man in real time or something and if it's not turn-based it's not a jrpg mm-hmm. whereas like final fantasy came out last year and it is an action game with some stats. Like, <laughs> I feel like Dark Souls is more of a JRPG than Final Fantasy XV is at this point. Mm-hmm. Final Fantasy XV is part of the the big the big three of the we just made an open world game, but Japan, right? Uh, with the with the Zeldas and the Metal Gear Solid Five, right? Yeah. Like, it, it's not really germane to this conversation, but is Zelda an RPG has been, like, a low-key oh, RPG right. discussion for decades <laughs> at this point. Never stopped. Oh, man. The thing I wanted to, like, pivot to ask about is um, the way other, like, national identities or national like subcultures of game making are considered. Like, there is definitely... There are people who talk in a similar way about, uh, like... Um, what's the word like you know uh eastern european first person games oh yeah I mean, that's gonna that's that's i'm on that trajectory to be that person so <laughs> but i mean like that is a that is a group of games with a very specific cultural context that has a fan base who like that but i feel like it's a lot less gross and there's definitely less baggage there when people talk about it like i mean e- even though those are like games that come from a place and have like as this common this common like sense of aesthetics and culture uh, it is. They're also just understood to just be video games, and there's no like. I haven't really seen like real. Oh, this like purity evangelism around that genre. So I, you don't see that in like the like the shooter space of like the Eastern Europe, like the one C games or whatever, because yeah. mm-hmm. the market one, the people who are into those games are not part of the broader gaming conversation. Uh, yeah. They're just in their niche and they stick there, but. I think that if these games were bigger, you would totally see that because think of how quickly the mainstream game environment ate up the narrative that the Witcher was like historical for being like the most white, like version of Northern European mythology. Yeah. Uh, And when the developers defended that in like a way that is rhetoric that at this point, like reeks of that sort of nationalism that everyone like cringes at and comes to like recognize as being like, potentially like even unknowingly deeply racist uh the whole audience like totally ate up oh yeah no this is just how it has to be because it's uh medieval europe and that's how medieval europe was never mind all of the other historical elements in a game in which you are a mutant running around fighting monsters uh and so i think that that totally would have those sorts of things and you think of how people hand ring like hand wave away the things that are unique to japanese games as like oh these are the cultural norms over there like how everything is shitty to gay people and how there's always some 14 year old who is actually like 300 but she's gonna wear a bikini all the time uh and it's the stuff that you you as once you get into the genre you kind of just learn that you have to overlook because they're not going away but it's always weary and everyone defends it when you don't have to defend it you can be like oh this thing is shitty 
and we recognize that and we're just going to engage with his work anyway but fans of the genre uh, that horrible term means that you don't. You totally defend that stuff. Yeah. And I don't know how... Like, I think that stuff would exist in other places. And I think it does. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if the people who mostly play Western games in other countries defend gross Western practices, too. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah, like, there's always, like, a sort of defensiveness around, like, liking Japanese games. Because it feels like there's been both kind of that push where it's, like, oh, Japanese games haven't been doing well, and then they like will trot out a quote from Kenji Inafune or something and to like, support their point, and then people will get very defensive about uh, like the, J- the JRPG genre, and then in doing so, like, uh, start <laughs> like defending the like, skeeziest entries in there. Like, they feel the need to like, defend every Senren Kagura and like, Dungeon Travelers on their way to just like saying... Instead of ha- like they they inadvertently also flatten the discourse and the range of what those games are on their way to mm-hmm. defend it, in the same way that the people who kind of look at hope to look down on the genre and like not paid attention to it for a long time do. Mm. And it's always like you... I don't know. It's always discomforting where um, that defensiveness kind of gets in the way of having any nuanced ideas about cultural ideas or um the, the cultural baggage and just kind of the genre in general and have like a real historical larger viewpoint rather than this very narrow fighting between people who refuse to kind of understand the history yeah and you see you see that with other genres too like the adventure games has this insane element as like a lot of people forget that adventure games have been flourishing literally since adventure games quote unquote went away in the nineties, just cause big companies weren't making them. Uh, adventure game studios, like a game making tool that's over a decade old. I feel like at this point, and people have just been making games in it and they keep releasing them. And there's a flourishing fandom there. And there's like two new adventure games on steam every day. Uh, yeah. um, there's like, there's like, um, uh, there's Wajidai who've been putting out like adventure games. Like it feels like every, there's like two of them every year, and then there's mm-hmm. like those German companies who do the uh, Deponia games and things like that who've been quietly yeah. putting out stuff. And then there's even like uh, hidden object games and things like that that have been drawing inspiration on those things, but you know um, they get dismissed real easily for not having enough interaction or whatever. Um, and then the things that they've been doing in that space kind of just disappear until one of them gets plucked out of the ether. Yeah. And the thing that these all have in common and like a great analog is this is the way people talk about Nintendo, where so much of this JRPG or adventure game love and defense stems from uh, like a performative nostalgia where like the people who grew up with it saw it went away or fell from prominence as like the main mode of games as like a storytelling medium because both of those genres had that peak and then descended um from it as other games caught up but uh like the audiences grow up with that sort of defensiveness built in like the reaction is oh you always defend the thing that was good and is like great and so you get young people defending a nostalgia they don't have like you look at the way people even young people talk about Nintendo like Nintendo has not been that relevant since the 90s uh 
people act like it's like the greatest game company on earth and it's been like an interesting place that makes often bad decisions and has never been the leader in anything since like 1996 like but people learn those behaviors. And I think that's true of JRPGs as well. Like people don't need to be defensive, but they've learned to be defensive because game FAQs happened 15 years ago. Yeah, no, I would, I would like the way, because games is like a smaller space. I assume this, like I assume this happens in other like fandoms and media circles, but you don't see this happening in the same way in just like, I am going to be this defense is about film as a concept, right? Comic books. Comic books is yeah. where this happens. Well, yeah, comic com- books comic 100%. Comic books is the right is the exact right size for this kind of thing. Um in that it's small and uh as the internet has grown there's like very specific areas and groups where norms of opinions are like centered. So yeah. people it, over like, here think this and people over here think this. It's not just that it's small. It's small. It's very focused on properties that people were introduced to as children Mm -hmm. uh, because there's no, like, there's no ceiling where things, like, the ceiling is really low on video games and comics. There's no, and that's not, like, broad, like, I'm speaking very broadly here, but there's not a flourishing space of work that is, like, for when you get older and your tastes change and you become more complex as a human being and you want more complex stories. Like, you can find those in comics and games, but you can't find them as easily and readily and they're not celebrated like they are in film or books. Mm-hmm. And I think that specifically is definitely, like, more, almost more true of um, JRPGs because we've, like, we have complained multiple times about how like the storytelling forms of these kind of games are very like good but the fact that they're all about 14 year olds is very grating after a time yeah Mm -hmm. there's gonna there's gonna be a point where i cannot can no longer relate to characters who are in high school i can't i cannot i cannot sit through another beach episode in my life i'm sorry i just got to the beach episode and i'm just like again why do we have to why do we have to have this every single time Mm mm-hmm yeah, like I don't, I don't need another scene of awkward teenagers at the beach who don't know how to flirt with people. Someone's uncle owns a, <laughs> a like a place to stay, which is right next to an empty beach. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. I I think that's kind of everything we've talked talked about this for a while. Unless does anyone has any closing thoughts or hot takes they want to drop? It's a summary of how we feel about all this. I I. Like I think the audience that we reach is probably people who play a lot of portable games anyway, because uh, we talk about them a lot. And I know we're friends. Like when I'm friends with someone, they end up with every portable system. That's just what happens. I don't understand, but I am. Uh... Before I did this or talked to M, I just had an Xbox 360. That was it. That was the only thing I played games on. Then I got a 3DS. Then about two months later, I somehow had a Vita. Yeah, I don't know why you would make a decision like that. And now I've um... got everything. No, you don't have a PSP Go yet. The, um, like, looking into what those spaces were doing for JRPGs in the last 10 years is, like, really interesting, and there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, The other thing that I think is worth looking into, and it's a thing that I should do more often, is looking into, A, what creators are doing, like, with RPG Maker to make interesting smaller games, but also what's getting fan translated that didn't come out over here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because so many things were deemed unmarketable in the West... And thus weren't like weren't given the chance. Like I would really like to uh, play the games by uh, Millennium Kitchen, who made uh, Tokyo Tale, or is that what it's called? 
Attack the Friday Monsters. That's what yeah, it is. That's yeah, what I, I, that's what I thought you meant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I would love to play their like PSP and PS2 games, but none and PS1 games, but none of those were ever translated and brought out over here. And I would love to see that work done. Maybe it has been done, and I just haven't been yeah. looking. But like those type of games are more interesting and are in the genres that you recognize, but given much more room to breathe. Um, and go find the weird games. Like everyone's like, oh, we're gonna go play Persona Five, but Persona Five is like selling better than big AAA Western games. Like that's not the niche anymore. Like the niche stuff is happening in different spaces because Persona's got to sell two anime series and three years of merchandise. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the shift that happened after. Like Persona Three was this very self-contained thing that gets referenced to, to every once in a while, but then Persona Four became the anime selling thing, where we mm-hmm. worked. We do the merch for every single other thing, and we sell it like any other anime property. Yeah, well, Persona Three like blew up probably actually bigger than they're expecting because that like has an ending, has a very like. Whereas Persona Four, they have done about four different sequels across different genres. Uh, there is like they've just filled in that space more. With... Yeah, they did the anime, and then they did the anime with the extended things from the expansion of the game. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I, I've, I've definitely heard stuff about Persona 5 that made it sound like it was going to be a much more uh, like substantial departure until they realized like oh this is like this game is no longer a game from Atlas right like this is not just a game that we sell to the people we are the new Final Fantasy we have to give the people what they want yeah they have to support Atlas so that they can keep making all the other Shin Megami Tensei games Someone has to fund Detrian Odyssey 5. <laughs> yeah, no, bring that to the West, please. Thank you. I'm the person who needs this in my life. Yep. But yeah. If so, you uh, didn't understand what we were talking about here, then just don't yeah. worry about it. Just yeah, play I guess, games. I guess what would we what would you like to see from like JRPGs and like more over like the way that people talk about the genre, I guess. Unlike, you know, from all angles. I mean for me, it's the thing that I would like from all uh, video game discourse, is I'd like people to actually engage with and play old things as real things. Like, they oft- often people talk about stuff with, like, things that came out in the 90s looming over the conversation in this, like, nebulous way where we've all agreed what they were and we're not going to talk about them. But they're all games that you can play, and they're mostly fairly approachable once you get in the right mindset. Like, there's some games that are old and annoying or have been, like, iterated on too much where they just feel kind of empty now. But for the most part, it's fine. And they're all just video games, and they don't need to be... There's no need to, like, big them up to this kind of, like, level of... Uh, cultural myth in this space because they're just games. It's fine. They're just video games. Go play them. So I have two incompatible things I would like to happen. One, <laughs> I would like the audience to be more okay with their RPGs not being huge, like, spectacles of graphics and design and everything where you could get more interesting games that, like, are cheaper to make, so they're, it's more sustainable and you can take those risks which is why portable games exist i guess everyone go play portable games uh, uh excuse me monster hunter will not be good until it is on a console again thank you no no it won't it'll be the <laughs> same game it's fine it's fine as it is now um but also if japan is not going to like get on board with the kind of standards for like how society works that the west 
expects and like i can't speak to that i'm not japanese but localizers should take the effort to take out your dumb awful punching down jokes and queer characters like you can do that in localization in ways that don't upset the plot very easily and some fucking weeb is going to complain but screw them they can go play the game in japanese like they want (laughs) i mean especially like localizers can especially do that as there are a lot of characters like Putting incredibly obvious subtext of, like, this kind of stuff is the most anime-type thing, right? So there's no reason... Like, you just have to change about three lines, and then it can stop being subtext. That's all you need to do in localization. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess, uh, kind of what I want to see is a little bit more critical thought around... Then this gets into kind of, like, a really much broader topic, but I'd like to see a little more critical thought about, like the idea of what a jrpg so we like talked about like yakuza and dark souls and all those things being jrpgs and i like uh the idea of what like Jap- japanese rpgs have to be from japan even if we're considering them like a specific genre and i kind of like i'd like to see a little more dissection of that with the way that it with the way that it like fits into the larger rpg canon and the mm-hmm. kind of roots of it because it also it feels like we consider JRPGs a very different thing than all the rest of the RPGs, despite them sharing so many similarities. And well, originally, like it wasn't it was RPG and CRPG, right? Like it was computer RPG and console RPG was the actual distinction before it became about East versus West. Yeah, but then even like Dragon Quest was like, oh, I wanted to make Ultima the computer RPG work on this Famicom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But then to go along with that, I guess I'd also like to see like some more historical understanding of where these things are and the places that they belong in without, you know, like you said, having to make everything into like a mythological like monolith that stands in that just appeared out of nowhere with all its ideas completely fully formed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, don't worry. None of that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, hot takes will continue to drop and we'll all be annoyed about them on Twitter. Yep, every five years. Bad news. Sorry to bring it down at the end of the show. I mean, whatever. We're three years from me swearing off video games forever, so... Uh, that's not true. You've sworn off video games forever about uh, like every six months since we started this podcast. <laughs> Eventually it'll stick. Uh-huh, yeah. Eventually, I'll decide that I have to buy a car or a house or something, maybe, (laughs) if that's a possibility in the future. And then I'll decide, (laughs) oh, I can just spend less money on video games and I can afford car payments. (laughs) And then I'll finally be done. Like, we are are deep in the we don't buy new games very often uh, as a duo. uh, Because I know Jackson makes the odd impulse purchase, and I guess I do too. But when you buy only old games to play for your podcast, it's very cheap. Yeah, no, the part where anyone ever buys a, like, new video game for full price when fucking Planescape right now is £15 on Steam. And why would you ever pay 50 quid for Persona? I don't understand. Right. Go play play P3P. It's the best Persona game. It's true. I'm not going to argue. Also, play as a girl. That's a good. Yeah, that's true. I haven't done that yet. 
I'm sorry. It says in the, the title screen that you want to change that for your, you want to save that for your second time, but they're lying to you. You're not going to play it twice. Yeah, I was trying. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> no, don't lie to me like this. You, that's really not a game that you finish and be like, oh yeah, that's the thing. I want to start <laughs> over right now. It's more you just kind of like exist in a stupor thinking about that game for a couple years afterwards. Well, right. We're going away, and then we're going to record the rest of this podcast <laughs> next week. Yeah. Uh, Omar, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on the internet at cigarettes. That's S-I-E-G-A-R-E-T-T-E-S. That's on the Twitter.com. I don't know why you would follow me, but everything else that I do is accessible from there. All right. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we'll have definitely have you on in the future to argue about this dumb Twitter bullshit. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you want me to argue about Twitter bullshit, I can enthusiastically You're, You get so. to be our correspondent from the front because I don't let Jackson talk about Twitter on the podcast. <laughs> Wait, what? Yes, you do. I try not to. I've never. This has never been a formal rule. This is the first no, time it's not, I've heard of it. No, it's not. It's not. But look, you're supposed to yes and. Don't you know anything? No, I'm ending this fucking segment. Goodbye. <laughs> Pikmin 3, uh, developed by Nintendo for the Wii U game console. This came out in 2013. 2013. Yep. And is the sequel to the games Pikmin and Pikmin 2, which are both GameCube games. We'll talk about them uh, as we go on. Pikmin is a RTS, kind of. It is like Nintendo's take on RTS in which you control a single person, in this case, um, one of three alien adventurers uh, named Alf, Brittany, and what's the other guy's name? Do you remember? I don't know. David. Alf, Brittany, and Charlie. Charlie's the uh, Charlie. captain. Oh, I guess it was actually cl- just a name. <laughs> yes. Um, and you find, you, you land on this planet that is ostensibly Earth, and these explorers are all like 
an inch or two tall and you find these small plant creatures called Pikmin and you direct them around and toss them at things and you can have like a hundred of them and they come in different varieties. Like the red ones are immune to fire. The yellow ones are immune to electricity and throw further because they have like wing ears. The blue ones can go underwater. Um, those are like the three Pikmin that are in all the games. Uh, this game introduces rock Pikmin, which are made of rock and will break glass and are cool. Uh, and the winged Pikmin, who are small but can uh, basically they ignore terrain. Uh, they're bad at battle, but they can pick things up and carry them like over top of uh, obstructions. Um, and they also will not drown in water because Pikmin are very fragile. And the game is about directing your Pikmin to fight the horrors of nature without being obliterated over and over again. Uh, the one thing that is through the Pikmin games is that they, the first Pikmin game had a very firm 30 day time limit. Cause each day you have to like from sunup to sundown, you have to get everything done and they have to get off the planet cause the creatures come out at night and will devour you and the Pikmin. Um, and the second game got rid of that, and we'll talk about that as, like, a bad idea, I think. And then Pikmin 3 introduced the idea that you can stay there as long as you have food, so you're collecting juice that is turned into, like, rations, and the more uh, juice you collect, the longer you can stay, and it's a pretty soft limit. Um, Jackson, this was your first Pikmin game, right? Yes. How did My you own. find Pikmin? Pikmin is good! It's good to play a Nintendo thing sometimes, and you're like, oh, hey, Nintendo can actually make a video game. I forget. Yeah, no, and all the discussion of Nintendo's foibles as, like, a company, they, the reason people like them is because their video games are usually pretty good. Yep, usually pretty good, uh, and this is one of them. Uh, it was weird to me going in in that the context for Pikmin 3 that I had from someone who was around on the internet when Pikmin 3 came out was that, oh, it's basically the same game. It's identical. They've changed nothing. Why are they releasing a GameCube game on the Wii U? Blah, 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 blah. blah. It's fine, I guess, but why would you play it? Is what uh, was said and is like the thing that happens to a lot of Nintendo games because they don't like outwardly change as much. But then you get into it and you realize, oh, this game is playable in a way that it it seems looking back the the predecessors were not so for me it was this very accessible game that had appearances of being strict in time limit but actually wasn't at all uh the fact that the other games don't have juice in them seems crazy to me because that soft limit that you can like expand by doing like good work seems core to how the like loop of the game works um so i enjoyed it a lot like you land on the planet you get your pikmin together you get a fruit and then you're like i have achieved something i am in a better position today than i was yesterday and if you can keep that going so like, like the other games the other games something. have that loop because the first game you crash land in all the parts of your ship are strewn about so you have to get them back and there's 30 pieces and you have 30 days and you collect those and your ship can go further like the more parts you get so you unlock new areas and stuff so you need at least 25 to get off the planet um, mm -hmm. and then the second game is all about like, you come back to your planet and your company's gone broke and, uh, Olimar has to go back to the planet to pick up treasure, which is basically like batteries and soda, like, uh, like, uh, bottle caps and like Carmex and, uh, lip balm containers, like v tiny objects that are all like branded and real world. Um, and, but the Pikmin universe considers them like rare treasures and they name them goofy names. And, uh, so you want to collect those, but that game excuse the time limit in favor of like, uh, you just got your own pace, you collect things and there's like weird dungeon areas that like, there isn't even like a daytime limit when you go into the dungeon areas cause they're underground. Um, but you can't grow Pikmin in those cause, uh, the main, one of the other main loops of this game is 
collecting carcasses or off of enemies or the like petal pellets that come out of flowers to grow more Pikmin to replenish your numbers because Pikmin, as I said, are pretty fragile. And that game very much is about managing set sizes that you can't grow back once you lose them when you go into the dungeon. Okay. Um, which I think it kind of, I don't know, like it takes away both like two of the things I consider core to the Pikmin loop in favor of a game that's much more about the like RTS part of like Mm -hmm. organizing your army and making sure the right Pikmin are attacking the right thing. And I just don't think that's like the interesting part of these games. I know Pikmin 2 is like really well regarded, but going back to these, I think Pikmin 2 forgets why Pikmin is good in favor of trying to do the thing that people said they wanted in a sequel to Pikmin. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I understand why that stuff would be there if this is a video game that you're coming for, for the, like, I want to find the challenge and find a loop that isn't just a very simple thing that you do over and over again because it's pleasant, because I think that's a lot of Pikmin 3, uh, especially if you don't go for, like, the full fruit completion. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what I really liked about it. Like, you have your day, there are achievable goals, and you make a pigment, and then if you're kind of smart about it, you'll be fine. Um, so it gives the feeling of pushing back against like a survival game type world that uh, if you don't do these things, you will um, perish. But it's if you're fine about it, you will get it done, and you get the sense of pushing back against it, and you... Uh, <laughs> like, that loop is very chill and uh, very pleasant, which is in keeping with the aesthetic of the game, uh, and it's all very Nintendo, whereas I don't have any interest personally after playing this in a harsher Pikmin. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be... like The end of this game, to skip to that, is a, the only time it gets really specifically intense about um, having an enclosed area with a limited number of Pikmin, which you have to control separately and... Uh, like manage as you would different groups in an rts um but that's my least favorite area in the game i think there's cool things in it i understand that you like it a lot but it's not why i'm i like i'm there to get some fruit and sometimes fight some guys i'm there to have the most extravagant hd fruit in my face yeah uh one of the main appeals to picking to me is like and this is true of all the games but because the wii u is like a more powerful console than the gamecube was you get this full up in your face is the like like macro photography version of like all these berries and watermelons and these plants and twigs and streams uh Pikmin has always been Miyamoto like was interested in gardening and wanted a game that like represented the way he thought about gardening and his like why it was appealing and Pikmin makes like a bunch of like very small nature stuff feel grand and interesting in ways that uh like I don't know it's like really surprising how much that game turns small spaces into like vast vistas and I really enjoy that. Like, where, like, a tiny stream with some, like, lily pads floating through is, like, an insurmountable obstacle that is, like, it takes multiple days to navigate this thing that if I was a person, I would just walk over. Yep. Like, it's definitely got that Katamari um, kind of feel to the way scale operates, but it goes in a different direction because even though the game is cartoony, the way it approaches, like, landscapes and nature is photorealistic. Mm-hmm. So, the, like... It's like someone has drawn a cartoon on a intense close photo of the ground. Yeah. Uh, and that's a very deliberate, specific Pikmin aesthetic, and I think it's very strong. Yeah. Uh, especially now that they can turn up 
the HDness all the way. And like hilariously, when you pour one of my like weird favorite like moments of the game or the quirks, which is clearly not deliberate, is at the end of every day you pour the juice, and there's this extravagant animation of juice being poured into uh, the glass, which is like you squeeze the fruit and the fruit disappears, and you like see the, the juice pour into the glass, and it the frame rate goes to about four frames a second as it just can't cope with all this juice, and it's so good. Yeah, the fluid <laughs> dynamics of this juice filling up this space container is so good. Because it comes with, like, the most satisfying commercial pouring sound you've ever heard in your life. Yep. Yep. And the the screen is empty. Nothing else is going on. There's no, like, extravagant beauty, except for the fact that they have put the entire power of this game's console to barely be able to show you the beautiful pouring of this juice. And it's the kind of excess that I want from games. It's so good. Yeah, no, it is the most Nintendo thing in the entire world to spend all of, like, make the game chug in pouring juice when, like, the rest of the game is like, I have a hundred Pikmin following me around through this beautiful space and that runs fine, but this is the thing. Yeah. Um, to me, one of the things that I is, I'm struck by in Pikmin is how much it becomes like a like slower, more thoughtful take on like a platform or a space exploration game. I uh, I tweeted like two week, a week ago, two weeks ago, two weeks ago when this comes out about how I feel like this game is Miyamoto like taking another run at the ideas of Mario. And to me, uh, the appeal of Pikmin is you have this like space where it's nature, but like it's like slightly askew and slightly threatening where like if you think of Mario as like just the design space, like what you would draw out as like concept art, you have a character that runs around and like hits blocks and jumps on mushrooms to collect mushrooms and tries to avoid turtles and like evil mushrooms and like a bunch of like natural things like squids and fish that are out to kill you. And uh, Pikmin so much feels like another run at that where you have these spaces and you're moving through them and you can't, you're not as mobile as you used to be like, like as you expect to be in a Mario. Cause like uh, the Pikmin characters can't jump and like, they're very bounded by the in, like structures of their environment. Cause you can't really climb over high things or anything. Um, but you have this whole army that follows you around and you're avoiding like weird, like bulbous dog creatures and strange worms that burrow out of the ground and like come to eat all your Pikmin. Like every new enemy is like this strange like monster that you're not sure how to approach and then you see what happens and it probably kills some of your guys. And then you have to learn to tackle it. But once you learn how to tackle it, you can just swarm it very easily and destroy it. Uh, there's this like very good sense of accomplishment with those things. And uh, like, as like a historical note, like Pikmin itself does kind of come out of a Mario game design. Um, in the early GameCube era, there was a preview of Mario 128, as like jokingly like this is what's going to be like the thing after Mario 64 and it's just this tech demo of 128 Marios running on this like surface um that almost like in other ways kind of presages Mario Galaxy because it's like a very round surface that just has these characters running around on it um but it's just 120 of these Mario models like all whooping and yahooing all at the same time and it's just chaos and madness if you've never seen <laughs> Mario 128 we will link it in the description cuz goddamn and but when you look at it if you like if you've seen Pikmin you're like oh this is just a bunch of Pikmin walking around because the, yeah. the thing with that idea is like they're like we we can display all these characters but when we do that they're all kind of stupid so what do you have like how do you make that usable as like a game and the answer is you 
have a character the player controls that guides them all and you use their limited pathfinding and ai abilities to like be like the mass that you control which is basically what pikmin is so you you're carrying around this whole group of like 100 idiots that are constantly getting caught on geometry and if they're singly like just one of them they're going to get murdered by literally anything in the environment but like as a mass when you like swarm an enemy it is incredibly satisfying to just see dozens and dozens of pikmin like climb up on a thing and just start murdering it uh, or like when you put a hundred thing, hundred Pikmin on breaking down a gate and the gate just collapses like instantly because a hundred oh, Pikmin is a lot. It's so good. It's yeah. so satisfying. Uh, like the, the fact that the, the parts of the game that are key to how it works just completely suck. Um, they design around that pretty well for the most part in the, like the, the pathfinding on the Pikmin is terrible straight up it sucks uh you say hey go here or hey follow me and if some of them are too far away and you've gone up a slope they'll just walk into a slope they can't climb rather than going around the part right there that they could get up forever yep and you need to walk back around whistle get them back into your group again and so you're just hurting these idiots constantly um and to the point where i don't know how deliberate it is uh, I've got to imagine some of it is and some of it isn't. I mean, like some of it I think just... I think some of it is deliberate, but I think also the fact that these characters, like, because you have a hundred of them, they can't be very smart because that would be hard to do. Like, they build that into the design of, like, Pikmin look kind of goofy. Like, they're just these, like, little tiny, like, elfin plant creatures that are clearly idiot babies that you need to shepherd around. Uh, so they know the kind of, like, AI they can handle and they design the game around that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Because, like, everything about the Pikmin, and if you look at, like, promotional art, they all look like these, like, curious little sprites that are, like, very dumb, but very, like, cute and, uh, like, curious. And that's kind of how Pikmin act in the world when left to their own devices. They're constantly getting lost, but they're also, like, if you're not directing them, they'll just walk up to anything, even if it's a thing that would kill them, and, like, look at it. And basically, it ends badly all the time. Yeah, and then you grab them together and send them to their deaths. Yep. (laughs) Uh you are killing so many pikmin these pikmin are tools to be accumulated they are nothing more than numbers to be thrown away but also like when a bunch of pikmin die and all their little pikmin ghosts go up all at once with the little like pikmin (laughs) sigh it is like it's actually sad you're like oh my babies but also like as a ruthless tyrant you're like i spent 15 minutes building that army that was just decimated i have to do that again i can't believe it the part where Pikmin is not intentionally, and you don't have to engage with it, I just think it's hilarious, but the part where it's, like, better at evoking the kinds of things that, like, games that have these kind of oppressive systems of uh, just building capitalism in order to deal with shit, the way that it does that better just inadvertently is very funny to me. Hmm. Because I was playing this alongside MGS5, and they're basically the same game. You're just Fultoning Pikmin for your full, for your Pikmin army. Uh, that's great. Because I think of this game in like terms of like an action Animal Crossing, where like to me it's all about like the softness of the spaces and like slowly peeking right through them with moments oh. of the the sheer terror and the capitalist grind. I mean, that's why it works because it's not actually about it; it just mm-hmm. exists. Yeah. And then there's these very hilarious moments where it like suddenly spikes up because you've lost like twenty Pikmin to a boss, and you're mixed between "Oh no, the Pikmin dying noise is sad. I love my Pikmin," and also "I ne- I had eighty of these and now I have sixty. What the fuck?" Yep. 
It's good. It's a good game. Yeah. Um, worth noting, uh, this game introduced, um, well, in, so the first two games were GameCube games, but then they got re-released on the Wii with remote, like Wii remote controls. Uh, the second, I don't think Pikmin 2 ever made it outside of Japan with new play control, right? Yes, it did. Okay. For some reason, I always think that's a Japan only thing. Uh, it's definitely in Europe. I don't know if it's in Pikmin 2. I, I know I could download it from the eShop right now. Yep. No. Uh, okay, yes, that came out on the Wii um, in Japan and Europe in 2009. It took till 2012 to get uh, Pikmin 2 New Play Control in the US. Okay, that's why I've never heard of it. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, it is on the Wii U eShop, both of those uh, games are, okay. if you actually want to play So the, the thing with the GameCube version of that game is that you, you're you controlling Olimar, who's the main character of those games, with the left stick. And then you have to use the C stick to, like, direct... Well, uh, you direct, like, the Pikmin around you with the C stick. And then, like, to throw, you're basically just using a reticle that appears... Like you have to, you have to like stop. And I think if you hit left trigger, like it makes the reticle like directable with the C stick, but it's a very like stop and direct the reticle and then throw the Pikmin at the thing. And with new play control and specifically Pikmin three, there is an option to just use the Wii remote where you point and you throw to where you pointed at. And it is absolutely the way I recommend to play these games. Playing it that way. I can't even believe these games existed before that because I, I never even tried playing this game with the um, other controllers. I know using the touchscreen on the Wii U, the tablet, is helpful because it offers a different... Like, playing it on the tablet by tapping and going, go there, mm-hmm. which is like... You can... Basically, you pause the game, you go on the map, you press a button uh, at a point where you're not, and it will program that character into that route so it treats that character like a Pikmin. Like, you're not controlling one character directing other characters in this game. You're controlling you directing a character directing a bunch of smaller characters. Yep. Um... And that has some interesting stuff, but I can engage with that and then immediately switch back to holding the um, uh, Wii Remote. Because the part where this game is like a RTS where you have a mouse cursor that has to click on and select things, but you're using the Wii Remote, is key to playing it like a thing that you don't hate. How does anyone play that game with a GameCube controller? So I know I know, like Pikmin 3 specifically has like a light uh, lock-on mechanic if you're using default controls, like the gamepad itself. Uh, which yeah. would help, but no, everyone recommends playing that game with a, a Wii remote. The, it does lead to the ridiculous situation where the game is on your TV, but all of your map features are in-world, like, sent to, like, the gamepad the characters carry around, so they're all on your gamepad, so you have to have your gamepad up to look at the map and stuff, and then you're also holding a separate controller in Nunchuck to control your character, so it's just this, like, two-screen, two-controller nonsense experience. It's the most Nintendo thing in the world. It yeah, is the I'm vitality like, sensor of video games. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you could put the thing, you could just put the map on the side of the screen, I'd be fine with that, because I don't want to have my... Because what that actually means is I am playing this video game with my controller and the console, and I have to have this block here, which after two hours will go, plug me in, I'm useless. There's something and... There's something kind of, uh, like, in, like... Uh, what do I want? Like, there's something texturally about this idea of when I play Pikmin, I have to have my gamepad up on its stand and plugged in, and I have to have my controllers, uh, like, make sure the sensor bar is not obscured. That it kind of feels like the closest I'll ever get to playing, like, Steel Battalion, where I have to, like, get into <laughs> the mode to play Pikmin. Yeah, it's also really strange because what this game makes clear is that for a very specific kind of game, um, 
and Nintendo made a bunch of them because they're Nintendo. Uh, there is no controller that will ever feel better than the Wii U and Nunchuck, the Wii Remote and Nunchuck. Like it is the most intuitive thing. It is you have the analog stick, you have a thing, and you point it at something. Like it has buttons that are way easier to reach than normal buttons because the A button is your thumb and then there's a trigger. Uh like it's maybe the best controller, but it's only used really well in a few games. Yep. Like, if you ask to do too much with it, it becomes, I can't handle it. But in, like, in Pikmin, in, like, Mario Galaxy, I would never rather play with anything other than that controller. Yeah. Uh, but then they bring this really simple, really good controller into the least intuitive setup of video games known to man. And the combination of those two things existing at once is none more Nintendo. Yeah, no, that's fair. It's good. Uh, so yeah, I, Pikmin is such an interesting thing. Uh, Miyamoto has uh, said in interviews leading up to three and like, it's like a thing you would say when you make a video game, but I think it's actually true here that Pikmin three is like the, the first time that he felt they like hit the actual idea that he had originally for what Pikmin would be as a thing. Um, if you go back and play the first Pikmin or look at it, like it's a very simple game. There's only the three types of Pikmin. Uh, the, there's no like zoning in the maps. Like each map is just a big area where like, there's like items strewn about. So there's no like going into trees or going into new areas or like going underground or anything like that. Um, like one of the map areas is underground in that game, but it's very like, everything's underground. It's just a big space and it's a big like RTS map. And, uh, also, that game has, like, one boss at the very end, and that's it. Like, there's no bosses. Wait, there's no bosses? No, there's no bosses. Uh, we haven't talked about them, but the boss fights are key to the structure of the game. Yeah, uh, Pikmin 3, because it has dungeons, introduces much more in the way of boss fights, because at the end of a lot of the dungeons is, like, a boss. And the boss in that game are kind of weird. Uh, like I said, I, there's things I don't like about Pikmin 3, or Pikmin 2, and, like, how it loses the time limit and changes a lot of the mechanics of the loops. Um but the boss fights are pretty cool. I think three like leans into them more and like integrates them better into the story. Um, but there are cool bosses in Pikmin two. I will say that. But Pikmin three has every area ends in a boss fight where you get the object that will allow you to go into the next like unlock the next zone. And the boss fights in Pikmin three are like very Mario Zelda influenced, and in that they are big bosses that have like a gimmick mechanic that's based around the new Pikmin you have, and you have to use those and your prior Pikmin very well to exploit the boss weaknesses. Uh, like one of the early bosses is like this big moth that is invisible, like in this cave, but it's sensitive to light. So you have to go around with your yellow Pikmin and turn on these light bulbs by like jumping circuits because the Pikmin can transfer electricity. And then it hits a light, and then the boss is revealed, and then you attack it until it falls down, and then you rush it with your army, and then it gets up again and shakes them off and turns invisible, and you do it all over again. And it's like classic Zelda boss construction as a thing. And Pikmin 3's bosses, I think, are all really colorful, and they're all very cool. Uh, I like the bosses a lot. Uh, I really like how the structure of the world and the time limit uh, is basically the soft Zelda design of the way it gets, the, like, gets you to bosses. In mm. that, um, like there's a there's a very specific at least I took a very specific approach to the way I went through the worlds. In that, uh, you build up the new Pikmin type you get. You are given a new Pikmin type. You build it up. Uh, then you make sure you get some fruit. And you get some fruit. You build some more Pikmin. You spend a couple of days of that. You unlock like you find the parts of the world that you need to deal with, and then. You deal with them, you reach the boss, and then you go back, and then you end the day. So, um, 
it's like the boss door opening in Zelda in that you then begin the day, run immediately to the boss and fight the boss rather than having to fight the boss with like a little bit of the time limit left and deal with that stuff. Yeah, because the bosses in particular like often need very specific Pikmin army makeups or you need to be thoughtful about who you bring. And also the bosses can take all day or multiple days if you're like bad at them. Yes. <laughs> they might do that. We've, I mean, we've both had bosses take multiple days. Uh, yeah, no, we both struggled with completely different bosses. You found the hardest boss I beat instantly losing about six Pikmin. The, uh, the big sandworm? Yeah, it's yeah. easy, except the light one is cruel and evil and monstrous. The light one, I just walked in and totally wrecked that guy's ship. But no, there's like a big sandworm thing that like burrows on the ground and creates these suck holes that will eat all of your army if you're not careful. And, uh, I've had that, ha- like, I, I failed multiple times on that boss. Like, I had full party wipes and would restart the day. No, you, like, lose about six Pikmin once, and then you never get hit by it again. No. Uh, and then there's but, bosses that need I don't like you didn't have any trouble with the bee right no never yeah happened. where there's like it, like the, the there's like this giant bee that has like a bee army and you just attack it with all your winged Pikmin and it's like a really cool very dynamic boss but like we both had no tr- no trouble with it, uh, it, it I lost a lot of Pikmin too I beat it in sure. one day but it was like but, uh, like it, I don't like yeah I lost a lot of Pikmin too but it's like a really cool boss it's very like you you idea you get the idea of what it's doing very quickly and then you just execute on that uh, I don't know. I had about five flying Pikmin left by the end. Like I was barely hanging on. <laughs> was not looking good for me. Uh, but yeah, no, I beat that boss in one day. Um, I beat all the bosses in one day except the final one. Okay. The final one is very hard to beat in one day. The final boss in this game. So you're like the three new explorers. They're from a different planet than like Olimar was in the first game. And eventually you find a character you think is Olimar. And if you've played these games, you know it's Louis Olimar's, like, idiot assistant in the second game that's, like, a playable character. Because, like, Pikmin 1, you only have one character. In Pikmin 2, you have two characters you switch between. This game has three characters you switch between. Let's pray if they ever make a Pikmin 4, they hold it at three. Because I don't want to control four characters. Go directly to hell. Uh, Three? uh, Maybe. What if? What if? Okay, hear me out. Instead of there being two platforms in the thing that you have to throw every Pikmin to an individual character three times, they do that with three platforms. So you throw four across, and you have to pass the button four hundred times to do anything. Um, if if they make one change to Pikmin, please allow an option where I can just throw all Pikmin in a direction. So what I'm describing there is there are puzzles in this game because there are multiple things. It's like the you stand on the edge of a river, there is you, uh, a platform in the middle, another platform, and the end of the river. And what you're meant to do is throw, like, throw one of your other characters, then throw all the other Pikmin to them, and then they control them. Then throw the final character, and then throw all the other Pikmin to them, and then they control them. And then, like, that, that is how you transfer the Pikmin across this insurmountable object that has, like, two things you have to cross. Mm-hmm. But you have to do that by pressing A a hundred times for every one of the Pikmin you want to throw both to the middle and to the end yeah and it's horrible i just want to say throw all the pikmin please yeah uh going back to the story so you find louis and they think he's olimar and louis steals all the juice because louis is a glutton that is established in pikmin 2 he bankrupted the company that you work for by eating all their shipments of carrots and then lying and saying a creature destroyed them same Uh, um and uh he steals all your juice and you get it back and then he points you in the direction of Olimar, who you find Olimar in this final area. It's like in a tree uh, and there's just like this weird gold creature standing above him and you attack that gold creature and it seems to like dissipate. 
and then you you carry Olimar because he's passed out and you have to get him out of the tree uh, by going through like all these tunnels inside the roots of the tree. And that gold thing just reappears and starts following you. And it's like this weird, strange blob, like almost like an, like an amoeba, but big. But if it grabs Olimar, it turns into these weird geometric shapes. And when you're, when you finally escort Olimar all the way back to the, the very end of the tree, it's like this big boss arena. Cause it's the end of the video game. But then the thing eats him and turns into this, it's called the plasm wraith. And it's just this crazy gold alien that like drips this goo that you have to destroy and then starts turning into these, like all these geometric shapes, like these spheres and these spires and these cubes. And I love how alien it feels compared to everything in Pikmin. Cause you've been playing nature and nature and all these plants and animals like up close and personal getting berries for 10, 12 hours at this point. And all of a sudden this, golden creatures like spewing geometry at you and the the alienness of it especially given the design of everything else is like really profound and i like i like that boss because it feels so different to the rest of the world where like you're very unsettled by the whole thing Mm -hmm. i I think it's a really cool boss fight yeah no because the whole game is about presenting familiar things in a way that feels alien Mm -hmm. um and then suddenly you have something that doesn't conform to either the cartoon like alienness of pikmin or the uh close-up of real things that is also pikmin and it's just completely the most alien thing it's so strange yep yeah i uh i like that fight a lot escorting olimar through the tunnels maybe a little much uh you think it's a little much i think it's cool uh like it's the one time the game asks you to do like an actual rts thing like kite this enemy around the level while you multitask your constructions and like pikmin does pikmin never asks for that and it can barely handle it to be fair but i think it's cool to do that as like the final challenge like it feels like uh, it requires you to know how the game works the idea of the challenge is interesting, but the part where what you actually do is control through fairly simple Pikmin puzzles while like, every 20 seconds switching back to someone to run in a circle is actually the worst. Like, that's bad. I mean, you don't have to you don't have to kite the uh, boss right there. Like, you can do it other places. Like, there's multiple loops and places to, like, do that. That just seems to be the most efficient way. Sure, but essentially you are cutting cutting back to someone else every few seconds of busy work. It is not an interesting puzzle. It is making a puzzle difficult through. Sure, like, but like it, it's the only time it actually demands that you multitask in a game that like is has that mechanic but doesn't ever need you to do it. And I, I think it's cool. Like I think it's interesting that in the end it finally like steps up to be like the RTS that it purports to be from the very beginning. Where like sure. having a control group that you can go back to and uh give commands quickly is like part of the challenge of that genre i think they could have done it in more interesting ways i guess like that is yes that is how you should end that game i wish they had uh, found a different kind of solution to implementing that idea but sure mm-hmm. but yes that's and to be fair the, the failure state of like if you are not good at that is like pretty soft you just have to go get olimar back yeah uh yeah that's pikmin i had a great time i like this game a lot uh i feel like if you've played Pikmin 3 and you want more, you can go back, but note that like Pikmin 3 is the good video game. And the other games are fine, but like it's one of those series where each entry seems to kind of invalidate the ones that came before it mechanically. Yeah, that's why like I began this going, oh, my reaction was that all the things would just be the same. But they, they do the thing where every game changes all the things that people forget were annoying. Yep. So they don't realize how much work has been done to make it 
a much more pleasant experience. Yeah. Because like that's almost the intent of it. Like it just becomes the thing that you think it is, but without the friction. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great time. I'm glad we that we did it for the dead console the Wii U. Uh, yeah, uh, R.I.P. the Wii U. Yep. Um, I'm burying mine in the ground next week. We have so many. I have so many Wii U games I have not played, so I can't do that. I'm still working on Zelda, Jackson. That's true. I have not played Wonderful 101. I have also not played Wonderful 101. Yeah. We will we'll return to the Wii and the Wii U at some point, because there's plenty of games there. Yes. It's a good it's a good system. Uh Wii remotes, cool controller that I wish people still used. Like I wish those ideas didn't seem to die with the Wii, because I thought I still think it's a cool way to control a video game. I need to play Metro Prime Trilogy with that. Yeah. Man, I'm excited to do that. So we reached segment four, which is our question segment. If you have questions, you can send them at, to podcast at abnormalmapping.com. Um, we have two questions that were sent to us over Twitter. You can always tweet us questions or, you know, ask us about the game club games, but you can just send us questions about anything at all. Um, we have one from at Dapskier that asks, which type of Pikmin is M and which is Jackson? And then how do you feel about the Explorer's relationship to the Pikmin? Which I think we talked about in that you think of them as like capitalist hellscape. I think of them as a bunch of babies you have to shepherd through a, a harsh and ter- terrible land. I would argue that those are the same view from different perspectives. I'm much kinder to the Pikmin, I think, than you are. <laughs> I think you're telling yourself you're kind to them. You are kind to them by saying that the horrible things have to happen because of your inherent superiority. There is nothing more capitalist hellscape than that. Yeah, whatever. I think the Pikmin are cute. Like, I'd love to have some Pikmin as pets. I would love them. Oh, they sure. would die instantly, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah or, I'd, or I'd wake up and they'd all be trying to murder me. One of those. <laughs> be like, oh my god. Imagine, like, the feeling of a hundred Pikmin climbing up your leg. Yeah, no, it would be the most oh. terrifying thing in the world. Because a human is so much bigger than anything they portray in those games. Yeah. The, they would be, you would have, like, a hundred Pikmin and they'd all be on your foot. Yeah, no, it'd be, oh, it'd be so scary. No. Oh, <laughs> I don't like it. I don't like it at all. So, Jackson, tag yourself. What Pikmin are you? Oh, probably the yellow ones. I don't know. Why are you the yellow one? Because they're kind of weak, but they have their uses. The other ones aren't very... The yellow ones aren't very weak. Okay. Um... I don't actually know, because I don't think the Pikmin actually have that distinguishable personalities like the rock ones are harder in gameplay but it's not like they all have lower pitch they're not like where the rock pikmin like the game doesn't do that in the way that it could Mm -hmm. Uh, which i think is to its strength which is still pikmin um i am going to say that i am the poison pikmin from pikmin 2 (laughs) good because uh, not only can they survive poisons, but they have the game describes it as beady little eyes that allow them to like see things buried underground. And I have beady little eyes, and I can see things buried underground. Well, some of that is true. 
I also think mm-hmm. they're like kind of the cutest Pikmin because they all look sickly and like they're all like they're very white. They're like kind of like albino rats, but Pikmin. Let's have a look at these poison. Oh, the poison Pikmin. Yes, I yeah. know those. Yep. Uh, next question is from uh, Jaybu3. Uh, do you think the overall deadline in Pikmin 3 limits okay. the audience? And Did adds you know an- all the people who have been adding us have names, right? Look, it's Twitter, Jackson. Okay. First one was from Daniel. This is from Jennifer. I don't, I don't know people's names. Oh, you're just seeing this in your Twitter account and haven't clicked through to their profiles? Yeah. Uh, to be fair, Jennifer's name is displayed, but uh, Dapsky's yes. is not. There. I still so, think of people as their Twitter handles. You know this. I know. I mean, that's true for some of them. Campster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you think the overall deadline in Pikmin 3 limits the audience and adds undue stress? And no. they mentioned 3 was their first and the time limit scared them away. And I replied that they should give 3 a chance because you were very hesitant. And I, even I was kind of stressed by the time limit idea. But it ended up being this, like I had like 20 juice left when I finished the video game. Yeah, pretty much every day I got more than one juice. So yeah. I was like, it was very rare of me to not be like exponentially expanding how much juice i had uh it becomes a challenge if you are going to get every single fruit but like at that point you're you're going back to areas where there's no bosses and you've cleared most of the bridges and you're just going through and grabbing a bunch of fruit like your fruit stock grows a lot when you do that oh sure but it's very clear like you walk past that one thing that is like a 2d kind of area with different scales like they have set up fruit challenges that are uh deliberate uh, bespoke puzzles which are harder than the real game because they're often optional areas that you don't need to complete to actually yeah. like beat the game so like they have built that kind of challenge into it but it's a very different game and you don't need to play it to like finish the yeah. video game it's its own thing so but, if you don't want to engage with intense pikmin time limits you do not have to it's um fine. but it, like i think a lot of pikmin's development has spoken to the fact that like the the limit the hard limit of the first game where you have 30 days and you have to get it done or the, you have to restart the game basically does limit like they've done everything in their power to change the way did they display that because people clearly didn't respond well to that sort of idea um because pikmin 2 like got rid of time limits completely but it ended up losing a lot i think in that and i like it's one of the things where like i remember the time thinking oh this is like a great idea because now i don't have to worry about it but then also i didn't beat that game and i beat pikmin 1 like it just ends up feeling kind of shapeless uh and meandering in a way that like to me pikmin is about like there's like the urge to explore that has to be backed up by like the text of the plot where like these characters have to do this because if they don't like they will run out of supplies and that has to be a part of the impetus because otherwise it just becomes like a yeah i'm just kind of walk around and do whatever and that then i feel like without like with that sensibility you just kind of fall off and lose the plot like i just don't think that's interesting i think there has to be the drive and you need the urging to actually go out and bring things back to your but it doesn't mind if it doesn't matter if the urging is like an actual hard limit or is like a soft baby limit like pikmin 3 because as long as it's there in the text and like every day you crack open a juice and britney's like oh i love this juice i'm so sad i have to share it with these two idiots uh Every time that happens, you're like, yeah, I accomplished something. I did it. I used a juice. My socks went down. Let's go get more juice. Let's do this. And, like, that helps, like, push you forward and, like, build the sense of, like, accomplishment in the world. And, I like, I think that's really important to a game like this. I agree. I am with you. Yep. So, uh, those are the questions. As always, send us questions. Uh, 
Nobody sends us emails. If you want to ask us questions about anything, go ahead and do it. Um, you can check us out at Normal Mapping. Uh, we have a website. Did, did we have the website last episode? Uh, yes, we did. It was the first one, but we also have it now. Yep. Uh, the, episode, the, the website is up. We have new art. Uh, thank you to Vin. Um, it's really good art. I like it a lot. It's good. <laughs> um, you can uh, go there. You can find our other shows. We launched our Star Trek podcast called we Second did. Officer Slog. You can uh, yes. find it at abnormalmapping.com slash SOS. Uh, it's on iTunes and everything. Um, I want to get these podcasts up on Google Play. That probably won't be done by the time you're listening to this, but that's like on my agenda coming up real soon. Uh, nice. Just in case people have a way they want to listen. But um, that show's great. Uh, there will be a new episode in a couple weeks. I need to go ahead and get that edited soon. It's been recorded for months, but, uh, you know, I'm slow and lazy. Uh, but, yeah, please share our podcast, write reviews, let people know uh, if you think they'll be interested in any of our shows because we need audience members. Uh, that would be great. Um, and, uh, check us out on YouTube. Uh, you know, you just go there, type in abnormal mapping. Jackson, you will probably be done with Mega Man 5 by then. God willing. Oh God, hopefully I don't want to play Mega Man ever again. Um, Jackson will eventually do Mega Man 6. I might do something in the meantime. That's not been decided yet, but you can check out my playthrough of, I'll be playing through Myst. Uh, that'll start going up this week. So I'll be three episodes into Myst at that point. Um, and that's going to be our next game club game. Uh, yes. we missed is a game ever. I've been wanting to do ever since we started this podcast, uh, going back to that was an experience. We are going to have a lot to talk about. I think, uh, I will try to bring many choice quotes from the era and what people said about mist in the meantime, that, uh, asshole at rock, paper, shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Finding out the, the PC gamer missed beef lives on to this day. Yeah. I, I can't it. believe I can't I can't believe it's one of the top ten gaming debates. Uh, <laughs> God damn it, Jackson! Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm excited for Mist. We're gonna have Mist. We Destiny will probably be joining us for that one, uh, unless something horrible happens, uh, because uh, that's a game I very much want her to play, and I think it'll be great to have her on. And you can find that next month. Uh, in the meantime, Jackson, where can people find you? I am at Headfuls Off on Twitter. And you can find me at em underscore being. Uh, this show is at abnormal mapping on Twitter, but we never use that account. <laughs> Maybe we should start now that we have a podcast network. But I don't yeah. know. What do we I... get? What branding? What is this? Like uh, SOS has an account. It's where I'm going to live tweet Star Trek episodes when I watch some Star Trek. Like that's going to happen. So I'm just going to tweet on my main account. Oh, you you could use that account too. I have 801 followers. I had 804 like an hour ago. What the fuck? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Hard if, limit. When you if get you know how to get above 800-ish <laughs> followers, let us know because I've been here for years and now Jackson's here and the plateau is real. It's a, it's a real limit. It's, it's not the Pikmin soft limit. It's a real limit. <laughs> yeah. We're done. Go home. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We will see you next month. Bye. <laughs>
「でも私たち愛してくれと